Hey, my beautiful people, this is James Palacio, a.k.a. Fiona Zonioni, prisoner number 96Z506, resident tranny and ring girl, and you are listening to Inside Oz. Enjoy the podcast, and please check out my new YouTube channel, FionasCoffeeTalks.com, and my self-published memoirs, The Life and Crimes of Fiona St. James, available at FionaStJames.com. Thanks so much for being here and keeping Oz alive. And please enjoy the podcast and stay well and stay safe. Till the next time. Bye. Ginger, ginger, broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out, did him clout, and landed on his back. I look around this room and I see white faces and black faces, every color in between, and the only thing that I know for sure is, oh, shit. I'll be able to get I don't give a shit. Talking about revolution. What I saw, that was revelation. You frolicking with the devil's maiden. I said I want my eyes back. Give them back to me. Here. Why not? You took them. Yeah, I'm a piece of shit. I am worthless. As bad as they come. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Today we're going to be looking back at Series 3, Episode 3, Legs, but before we get into that... I need to make a slight correction to last week's episode, otherwise my statistics at the end of the series are going to be all over the place. You might remember back in Series 1 that even though we never saw her on screen, I did include Angie Shabetta in the death toll for the series, and I also did the same for Genevieve Beecher in Series 2, although we did see her in one episode. Last time I said that everybody made it out of the episode alive, but of course one of the key points in the episode was the death of Diane's mother. So for continuity's sake, I'm adding her into the Series 3 death toll, meaning that we actually have a body count of two so far this series. So with that little tidbit cleared up and out of the way, it's on to Series 3, Episode 3, Legs. Holding a score of 8.4 on IMDb, it was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Keith Samples, returning for his second episode on the show. The episode was originally broadcast on July 28th, 1999, a day on which in the state of Florida, Lionel Tate, aged 12, flung his sister, Tiffany Eunuch, aged 6, around the living room in what was claimed to be a mimicking of professional wrestling, resulting in Tiffany's death. Tate was convicted of first-degree murder in 2001 and sentenced to life in prison at just 14 years of age. However, a new trial was ordered in 2003 by an appeals court, which saw the charge downgraded to second-degree murder, and Tate was released the following year. Also on this day, Defense Secretary William Cohen announced that Wesley Clark, a U.S. Army General, would be replaced as NATO Commander by Air Force General Joseph Ralston. And in events relevant to this episode, U.S. Surgeon General David Satcher declared suicide to be a national threat in the U.S., stating that people should not be afraid or ashamed to seek help. I used to be a runner. Uh Uh-huh. Not a marathoner. A runner. Marathons are bullshit. They're all hype. Some official picks a random day and rain or cold, you're out pounding the pavement alongside 50,000 other dumb fucks. No. There's some things it's better to do all by yourself. 
So Act 1 gets underway with Augustus reminiscing that he used to be a runner, and he's very specific about how he wasn't about doing marathons, as he thinks they're bullshit, and we see a number of folks running on treadmills. These Augustus vignettes feel a complete world away from where we were when we started the show and he was in his rotating box, but the move away from that has allowed them to become a little more elaborate with what they can do in them, and I think long term it was a wise move to get away from the rotating. Augustus also seems to be sat in his PE kit and says that some things are better to be done by yourself, and let's just get it out of the way now, those are some very short shorts that Harold is wearing in this intro. The episode opens up with Claire doing the rounds in solitary, opening up the hatches on the cells, and she has to get into Miguel's cell quickly as he is hanging from his makeshift noose. Miguel also seems to have somehow moved from hanging off the bars at the front of his cell to now hanging towards the rear and more from the ceiling. Now that could be a mistake in filming depending on how the schedule was put together, but there could be a storyline explanation behind it whereby it might have taken a number of attempts for Miguel to find a way to successfully hang himself in a way that would have killed him. Without getting too heavy into the subject matter, there are a number of factors that would have affected Miguel's chances of dying. Traditionally, and this is something that we'll cover again in the future, when a person was executed by hanging they would drop through a trapdoor in the gallows, which would essentially snap their neck and kill them more or less instantaneously. Miguel, however, hasn't got that much of a drop and is depending on his own body weight, so his death would have come by asphyxiation, and while he would have lost consciousness within a few seconds, strangulation of the airway can take on average anywhere between 4 and 6 minutes. Had he done this at lights out, there is no chance he would have been found alive had Miguel managed to successfully hang himself in the way that we saw at the end of the previous episode, but if Miguel has had to re-attempt hanging himself, then Claire managing to find him within that 4-6 minute window has potentially saved his life. Or, like I say, it could just be a filming error and that didn't get picked up on, but I'd like to think there is also somewhat of an explanation behind it as well. Either way, Miguel is rushed to the infirmary and Dr. Garvey sees him being wheeled by, and he does have a concerned look on his face, realising that what he said previously as well as Gloria's warnings might actually be coming true. Cut to the library where a staff meeting is in progress between Leo, Gloria, McManus, Sister Pete and Garvey. Gloria is laying into Garvey and she is furious, saying she told him this would happen. All he can muster in response is a sarcastic dig at how she'll be missed once she's gone. Leo asks whether or not Miguel will live, which Gloria says that he will, and tells everyone to relax. Sister Pete makes the point that while Miguel might be okay this time, they might not be so lucky next time, and tells Garvey that the next inmate that he deprives of medication just because it costs too much might end up dead. Garvey activates soundbite mode and rolls off an explanation about how Weigert were contracted to provide healthcare to the state prison system and blah blah blah. He's had this response preloaded and ready to go for a while. He says that his role is making judgement calls and that the deal that Devlin made was that Garvey would have complete autonomy and that he won't have that broached in any circumstance, and storms out to the meeting. Mamanis tells Leo what he thinks of the situation. Leo, this is bullshit. But Leo says that he has no authority over how Weiger operates, leaving everyone to ponder what they should do. Gloria says they should go public with what's happened, Leo giving one of his ambiguous looks of not saying yes or no either way, and we then cut to Gloria finishing a meeting with journalist Rick Don played by Tim Hopper, who we've seen now and again throughout the show when we need a bit of exposition through TV reports. He passes Garvey as he leaves, and straight away it's squeaky bum time for Garvey, asking who that was and why Gloria was talking to him. She says that she's told him about Miguel's attempted suicide, which puts the fear of God into Garvey, 
and says that seeing as she only has two weeks until she leaves, she's got nothing to lose. Garvey says that he'll just deny everything to the press and portray Gloria as a disgruntled ex-employee. Gloria saying, fine, you do that. But the next time it happens, and if the next time someone dies, then Garvey won't have anyone to blame. She leaves the office giving Garvey some fashion advice about switching to a red tie, saying that it'll look better on camera. Garvey picks up the phone and asks, is he in? This is an emergency, as Gloria goes to check on Miguel. Cuts to Leo's office where Gloria knocks on the door and is greeted by Governor Devlin. He shakes her hand and says that he has a problem, but before Gloria can diagnose anything, he says it's to do with the Miguel situation. He mentions that Rick Don called his office requesting an interview, but he's also received a call from the CEO of Medmore, Ross Tavoli. Quick Google search of that name didn't send anything back to indicate that it's connected to anyone on the show, so it seems to just be a name picked at random. He says that he and Tavoli are old friends, and as Gloria attempts to say a piece, he asks her if she's gone on camera yet, which Gloria says she hasn't. Devlin seems thrilled at that and has a proposal for Gloria whereby she can keep her job, Miguel goes back on the medication, and Weigert agrees to review how they budget things. Gloria asks what's going to happen with Garvey, and Devlin tells her that Garvey is gone and that it turns out he was a back-alley abortionist back in the early 70s and lost a patient on the operating table and that he moved states and successfully sued to get his medical license back, and even he throws his hands up saying don't ask how. He's still willing to allow Gloria to go on camera and give that information to the news stations as an exclusive, thus allowing for everything else to die, as he puts it, a natural death. The scene closes with Devlin saying that he's heard that Gloria is a reasonable person, and asks her to be reasonable now. Garvey resigned today amidst the controversy. Governor Devlin said he would hold the Weiger Corporation accountable for its actions. Spokesman for the company said that they had no knowledge of Garvey's prior record and have promised a re-evaluation of their policy for correctional facilities nationwide. So that's it. That's the end of Dr. Garvey on the show. And it all ended with this completely out-of-left-field abortionist angle. I'm not sure how I feel about that, to be honest, as I knew this was the last episode that the character appeared in, but the way they went about writing him out of the show just didn't really work for me. Part of me feels like they could have had the meeting between Devlin, Gloria and Garvey, and in that scene you could have had Devlin fire Garvey, but then you're in danger of turning Devlin into something of a good guy, and we can't be having that. He could have simply told Gloria that he wasn't happy with the job that Garvey was doing, and that would be the end of it, and then Gloria doesn't have to go on camera at all. But instead, we get this completely random bit of backstory that's had no build to it whatsoever, no inclination of it even existing. And to be honest, Garvey has been enough of a bastard already. Did he really need to have this added to push that even further? I understand that they needed to find a way to keep Gloria on the show and write Garvey out, but what we ended up with and how it happened so fast just didn't work for me. Gloria and Sister Pete check in with Miguel, and he's asking if he's in heaven or not. Sister Pete tells him not quite, and Miguel has a shit I'm still only in Saigon moment, and says that they should have let him die as the scene closes, and we cut to the crime flashback of new inmate Nikolai Stanislavski, played by Philip Kasnoff. Born August 3rd, 1949 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Philip graduated from the Central High School in 1967, and attended Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, graduating in 1971. Philip's first acting experience came on the theatre stage, where he worked as a replacement in the Broadway production of Grease at the Royale Theatre, playing the part of the Teen Angel between 1972 and 1980, 
as well as being part of the standby cast in Cliff Jones' Rockabye Hamlet at the Minskoff Theatre in 1976. In addition to his stage work, Philip made his film debut in 1978 alongside Vic Morrow and Sonny Shiba in Message from Space, Kinji Fukasaku's desperate attempt to cash in on the success of Star Wars, and a film described by the New York Post as so terrible it has a certain comic integrity. Philip followed this up in 1980 with appearances in the movies Gorp and Christmas Evil, before making his television debut in 1982 with credits for American Playhouse, The Renegades and Remington Steel and in 1984 landed his first recurring role playing the part of Brian Murdoch in the ABC soap opera The Edge of Night. That same year he had minor roles in the miniseries George Washington for CBS, as well as an early episode of George A. Romero's Tales from the Dark Side. Other TV credits include playing the part of Major Elkana Benz in North and South Book 1 and 2, shown in 1985 and 1986 respectively, Hands of a Stranger in 1987, and Ironclads in 1991. Philip also returned to the stage in 1988 in the musical Chess, playing the lead role of Frederick Trumper, also known as the American at the Imperial Theatre. While the show was panned by many critics, Philip was generally praised for his performance, and won a Theatre World Award for Best Actor. Following on from this success, Philip appeared in The Devil's Disciple at the Circle in the Square Theatre from 1988 to 1989, and in 1990 played the part of John Blackthorne in Shogun the Musical at the Marquis Theatre on West 46th Street. Philip's last credited stage role came in 1996, where he worked as a replacement in the Broadway production of Chicago at the Richard Rogers Theatre, playing the part of lead male Billy Flynn. Philip's big break on screen came in 1992, playing the lead role in CBS's four-part miniseries Sinatra, where Philip was nominated for an American Television Award, as well as a Golden Globe for his portrayal of Old Blue Eyes. Returning to film that same year with an appearance in Jersey Girl, Philip also received credits throughout the 90s for Saints and Sinners, Temptation, and How Stella Got a Groove Back, while on TV he reprised his role as Major Bent for North and South Book 3 in 1994, as well as landing the role of internal affairs detective James Vitelli in Under Suspicion on CBS. The rest of the 90s saw Philip appear in numerous TV shows such as Chicago Hope, the Nanny, Wings, ER, and Walker, Texas Ranger, as well as made-for-TV movies including Zoya from 1995, 1997's Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, as well as Blood on Her Hands, Tempting Fate, Chameleon, and The Defenders taking the first before appearing here on Oz. So Nikolai is busted selling some illegal diamonds to some undercover officers in a sting operation, and sentenced to 15 years, up for parole in five. He's been given Boost Malles as a sponsor, and he has a ton of questions for Nikolai, mainly focused on Nikolai being Russian, whether or not he's from Russia, and if he was born in Russia. Nikolai brilliantly gets more and more annoyed with each question. It reminded me a lot of The Simpsons where Homer goes with a poo to India to meet with the head of the Quickie Mart. Or maybe it's just a case that Boost Malles isn't buying that Russian accent. You're Russian? Yes. From Russia? Yes. You were born in Russia? Yes. Are you really the head of the Quickie Mart? Yes. Really? Yes. You? Yes. He also asks if this is Nikolai's first time in Oz, Nikolai telling him that it's his only time, but he's previously spent seven years in a Soviet gulag, and that Oz is a piece of cake by comparison. A gulag, or to give it its official name, the Lavna Uplavleni Lageri, wasn't a prison in the traditional sense of the word, it was more like a forced labour camp 
and operated mainly under the regime of Joseph Stalin, although the first was opened in 1919, expanding to a total of 84 in 1921. A gulag could hold anywhere between 2,000 and 10,000 prisoners, who would often work 14-hour days, often in extreme weather conditions, and many died from either starvation, exhaustion, or from catching a disease due to poor conditions. Following Stalin's death in 1953 and under the leadership of his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, many gulags ceased to operate. However, they were not all closed down completely. Some were restructured into what now resembles a prison during the 1970s and into the 1980s. It wasn't until 1987 under Mikhail Gorbachev, himself the grandson of gulag victims, that the process of completely closing gulags went ahead before the distension of the Soviet Union in 1991. So there's a few things to ponder here. With the show being at 1999 in the timeline at this point, it could be that Nikolai hasn't spent any time in a gulag in the immediate seven years previous, so he could be full of shit and just saying this to give himself a reputation. Or what he's saying is true and he could have spent the seven years in the gulag between 1984 and 1991 in the real world timeline. Or thirdly, it could be that Russians simply refer to any sort of prison as a gulag, and he's been incarcerated at some point in the preceding seven years. So there's an air of mystery to Nikolai straight away. Like most guys in M-City, he notices Miss Sally on the TV straight away. And Boost Malice seems like he's becoming somewhat infatuated with the actress playing her. They head into the pod and Nikolai wants to know how close he is to death row. Boost Malice continues with the questions, asking if he knows someone down there, but Nikolai says that he knew Alexander Vogel, and would like to shake the hand of the man who killed him. Busmalis tells him that the man he's looking for is Richie Hanlon, and Nikolai tells him something in Russian which doesn't come up on the subtitles, and even the script transcripts that I found online just have it as, says something in Russian. So if any of you comrades know what Nikolai was saying here, please let me know. We head off to Death Row where Shirley is doing some knitting, and Richie is reading Macbeth planting one hell of a seed for the future right there, especially when you consider that Schillinger is in this scene too. Obviously, those of you who've watched the show before will realise the significance of that and what it means in the future, but at this stage, that wasn't the plan, but I will cover all of that in due course. I also love the relationship that Shirley and Richie have made for themselves. They're basically a married couple now, just doing their own things and only sharing small exchanges. I also really want to see Richie in this sweater that she's making. So, as I mentioned, Schillinger comes round with his little cart to hand out the mail. Like I'd have easy before him, Schillinger seems completely smitten with Shirley, and he gives her a package containing a teapot, mentioning about how she's turning her cell into quite the little nest. It's easy to see why Shirley is able to get what she wants from the male population. She's very flirtatious, and even rubs Schillinger's fingers here. I think the only people we've seen repel her so far is Ray and her lawyer in the last episode. Richie has as well, obviously, but he seems to have a different kind of relationship with Shirley to everyone else. She tells him how her appeal is going to the state Supreme Court, and she might be around for a while longer, which Schillinger says is great news, but he's soon moved along by the guard. Before he goes, though, he and Richie exchange pleasantries. Hello, Richie. Nothing for you today. Guess all your little fag friends are too busy getting their legs waxed. Fuck you, Schillinger. Schillinger, asshole. Shirley asks Richie what's the deal between himself and Schillinger, and Richie explains how Schillinger is the reason that he's on death row and references the Vogel killing, which we get a flashback of, and how he was forced into confessing to the murder or be killed by the Aryans. 
She mentions about it being a death sentence either way and asks why Richie doesn't just tell the truth. But he doesn't think that the guards will listen to him and they'll ask for proof of Schillinger's involvement, which he doesn't have. Ever the schemer, Shirley proposes that Richie lie to them, saying that it was he and Schillinger that killed Vogel together. Richie asks how that saved him, which obviously it doesn't, he would be charged with murder either way, but it would mean that Schillinger would also be facing the death penalty. The scene closes with Shirley telling Richie that it's simply something to consider, as we go off to Unit B where McManus is going to visit with Malcolm. Well, how are you doing? You comfortable? The fuck you care? Why'd you tell Hill you murdered that family? Why don't you just keep your fucking mouth shut? You might as well be asking me why I had Frankie go videotape me do the deed. Then you might as well ask me why I even do the deed at all. If you can't figure none of that shit out, you don't belong here, McManus. Fine, I don't belong here. Why'd you tell Hill? Hell. I mean, he different than the other niggas in this place. I want his respect. Respect. Now I want him dead. You happy, McManus? You got everything you came for? You see, I want his respect, now I want him dead. It's a thin line between love and hate. You got that, McManus? You bastard. So we get something of a reason as to why Malcolm told Augustus about the murders. And that delivery of, you got that, McManus? You bastard? Is something that often pops up on Oz Best Moments videos. Malcolm's reasoning and the scene that's coming up soon really reflect how Augustus is viewed by the other inmates, and reaffirms what I've been saying about him too. He's more down-to-earth, he's more human, he's basically the moral centre of the show. Back in M-City, the inmates are watching the news, who are showing some of the video that Malcolm mentioned about. So he was telling the truth about that, and it stands to reason that he could have been telling the truth about everything else. Ryan is giving out about why they're showing that on the evening news. Chico telling him not to be a vag about it, but Ryan makes good points about why they shouldn't be allowed to show things like that on TV, especially if it's evidence to be used in the courts. It might be questionable, but it's not illegal for the news to show a video like this in their broadcasts, as the footage, like on this occasion, would have been released to them by the police. Of course, there are well-documented moments where the news have broadcast videos that would have been used as evidence in a court of law that would have been released by the police as well, such as the Rodney King video that we talked about back in Series 1. Cyril's more bothered about wanting to watch Miss Sally, and he has a supporter in Booz Mallers who wants to look at her big bazooms, but Poet calls Augustus a jabber when he's shown on the TV, while an inmate with glasses says that they're putting Augustus in protective custody. That caught me a bit off guard, I'm thinking, who the fuck is this guy? but I'll come back to him soon, and Kenny says that being in PC won't save Augustus and that he's going to pay for what he's done to Malcolm, completely missing the point that Malcolm has committed a horrific crime, but that's Kenny for you, he's still a kid who doesn't seem to get it. We get one more shot of Malcolm in his cell before cutting to Augustus talking with McManus in PC. Augustus feels like he was going round in circles when he was being questioned, but McManus assures him that he did great and that Malcolm is going to be convicted of murder. McManus is just sat with his back against the bars, he's got his knee up, he's totally at ease around Augustus, who mentions there were two things that he enjoyed best, being outside and the sense of being out of harm's way, which he calls a sense of freedom. Him saying that made me realise how rare it is that we actually go outside unless it's for someone's crime flashback, 
And I think the last time we went outside of the prison was when Ryan had his operation during his cancer scare. In terms of storyline, it could be that the inmates are barred from outside recreation, such as what happened in 2016 at Colorado State Penitentiary, but it's more likely a practical issue that the show was faced with. As I've mentioned previously, Oz was always faced with a very tight budget, and we've talked before how the prison set was housed in an old biscuit factory in the Chelsea Market in Manhattan, which doesn't lend well to shooting the exterior of a prison. Obviously, this meant you would have to either go shooting on location somewhere outside the city, perhaps even having to rent that space, or you would have had to build a set somewhere outside for all exterior scenes. Clearly, these were not viable options, so that's why we don't tend to go anywhere or see the inmates outside in some sort of yard. Augustus mentions about how the city now has two new skyscrapers, although the closest that I could find for a new skyscraper in this timeline was four times square, more commonly known as the Condé Nast building, the ninth tallest building in New York, with a pinnacle height of 1,118 feet. There was a real boom in the number of skyscrapers built in the early 21st century, changing the New York skyline dramatically, and while there may have been more under construction, that will have been the only completed building since Augustus was convicted in 1995. He acknowledges that Kenny and others are gunning for him, and he says that he doesn't blame them, and questions whether or not ratting Malcolm out was the right thing to do, and that no trial is going to bring back those that Malcolm killed. Mamana says the prison will look after him, but Augustus just laughs at that idea as we go to the library where Saeed has called a meeting with Schillinger, Chico, who for some reason is representing the Latinos instead of El Cid, and Napa, who seems a little under the weather. You all right? Yeah. I got the flu. Go on with what you were saying about hell. Nobody likes a snitch. That's true, but we're going to put that aside for the moment. And what I'm doing is I am appealing to your sense of conscience. Though all of you here, you have committed murder. But only in the course of conducting business. It's true, this is different. You're all family men. Carl's murdering of an innocent family threatens your families on the outside, too. What do you want, Saeed? Help me protect Hill. All of us together. We make it clear to Wangler. We will not tolerate any harm coming on. You know, I, I know that you and Shimano family are little nice people, never hurt a soul. And the father, he died in Nam. Nah, man. Count the brotherhood in. You? Sure. Napa. Not only will no one touch you, but uh, I'll do you one better. That one better is murdering Malcolm in his cell, where we see him tied to the bars with a shitload of stab wounds in the back and bleeding all the way down his legs and feet, his blood pooling on the floor. Back in M-City, Jr. is telling Kenny that Napa killed Malcolm, and that they need to retaliate, and that Augustus needs to die too. Kenny, however, says that now isn't the right time, a clear message having been sent to the homeboys that Augustus is not to be touched, in a rare showing of unity from the other gangs showing their respect for Augustus, as we close out at one. Yo, Napa airhole snake man. Now we've got the air hole napper. And that crippled snitch bitch ass nigga Hill, we got to whack his ass too. Shh, chill, yo. We can't fuck with either one of them right now. 
We had them fucking Sicilians, the Muslims, Aryan motherfuckers in the spicks all over our dicks. We gotta chill, yo. So we don't do. Let them disrespect us like that? Disrespect? Fuck that. We just gotta wait for the right time. And we're gonna nail both their asses to the fucking wall. You heard? What? So act two opens with Carlo down in the hall crying for his mum. And Officer Menio comes in to give him some clothes and take him for a visit with his family. Not a massive amount to say about this scene that we haven't covered already. Carlo's family visits and there's less and less of them each time. He is starting to catch on though as he calls out his dad for lying about why his sister didn't come and says if I'm dead to them then they're dead to me and storms out of the room nearly forgetting his fruit basket. Augustus narrates about when runners say about hitting the wall as we cut to Carlo and his pod punching the wall in one of the more on-the-nose pieces of direction that we've seen. The inmate with the glasses from before approaches Carlo, telling him that sometimes it's good to pray, but Carlo grabs him by the shirt and pushes him into the pod, saying that he better pray that Carlo doesn't cut him. This inmate with the glasses is William Cudney, played by Will Kurt. We'll see him again later on in this episode, and he does get a crime flashback in a future episode, so I'll introduce him properly when we get there. Right now though he's lucky that Clayton walks by when he does and Clayton calls for backup to deal with Carlo and his knife. Officers jump in and escort Carlo away but before he goes back to the hull in what I think is the quickest turnaround on the show so far he tells Clayton that he has no balls as Cudney makes his escape to the lower level and passes Poet who's doing some writing. Much like with McManus overlooking the kitchen in the last episode I really like how these two scenes transition from one another. Adebisi approaches him, this week going for a less coloured armbands, higher waisted trousers look, and asks what Poet is writing, but Poet tells him that he doesn't write poetry anymore because he doesn't feel like it. Adebisi tells Poet that his writing was good, but Poet wants to be left alone and walks away, passing Saeed along the way, and they exchange glances and still don't seem to be on speaking terms. There's a moment where Poet looks like he's going to read from his notepad, but he waves it off and leaves so it's looking like he wants to get back on good terms with Saeed. You'll remember he was incredibly grateful to Saeed for getting his work published, but since coming back to us, there's been nothing there between them. Hamid hands Saeed a cup of water, and Arif mentions about how Saeed has been on his hunger strike for four days, but Leo and McManus don't seem to be budging. Saeed says that soon enough Leo and McManus will see that he isn't bluffing, and tells Arif not to worry, as we cut to Saeed meeting with Arnold Zellman who we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast so far this series, but this is the first real bit of screen time that this character has had. As I've mentioned before, Arnold Zellman is played by Larry Pine, a veteran of the Broadway stage. Born March 3rd, 1945 in Tucson, Arizona, Larry grew up in Midland, Texas, where he first started acting in community theatre. After graduating high school, Larry earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of North Texas and a Master of Fine Arts degree from New York University in 1968. That same year, Larry co-founded the Manhattan Project Theatre Company and made his Broadway debut, appearing at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre in a production of Serrano de Bergerac. 1977 through 1979 saw Larry appear off-Broadway in productions of Jinx Brigade and The Mandrake, both staged at the Public Theatre on Lafayette Street, before making his TV acting debut in the 1978 TV movie, Hullabaloo over Georgie and Bonnie's Pictures. In 1982, Larry made the move into film acting, making his debut in Eye of the Jury, as well as Hanky Panky, Q, 
and Alone in the Dark before returning to the Broadway stage the following year, appearing in Private Lives at the Lundfontaine Theatre. With theatre credits for The End of the World and A Day in the Death of Joe Egg at the Music Box and Longacre Theatres respectively, Larry returned to TV for an appearance in Tales from the Dark Side in 1986, Miami Vice in 1988, and in 1989 landed the recurring role of Roger Gordon in One Life to Live, as well as appearances in The Justice Game, The Days and Night of Molly Todd, Law and Order, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, and a recurring role in All My Children. Larry returned to the Broadway stage once again in 1993, playing the part of Roy Cohn in Angels in America at the Walter Kerr Theatre, and 1996 appeared in Bus Stop at the Circle in the Square, playing the part of Virgil Blessing. Larry also made a return to film acting, appearing in 1994's Vanya on 42nd Street, in which he earned a nomination for an Independent Spirit Award, and Dead Man Walking in 1995, as well as The Ice Storm, Addicted to Love, Academy Boys, and Sunday, all from 1997. In 1998 he appeared in the Woody Allen directed film Celebrity, and in 1999 appeared in A Stranger in the Kingdom, while on TV he appeared in Law and Order for a second time in a 1999 episode, playing a different role from his previous appearance before appearing here on Oz. Arnold tells Saeed that their lawsuit has been accepted by a judge, but won't go to trial for another two months. Saeed obviously isn't happy about this, as he's going hungry in the meantime, so he tells Arnold to pay a visit to Leo and McManus. This hunger strike started because you wouldn't allow Saeed to have food in his cell at night so that he could fast during the day. I won't grant him special status. As of tomorrow, two more Muslims will stop eating. Day after that, three more will stop, and so on and so on, until every Muslim in Oz, until every Muslim in every prison in this state is on a hunger strike. I'm not the state's attorney, but my guess is he'd say that the last thing you need right now on top of the class action suit is a prison system full of men dying for their faith. Bad press, bad karma, gentlemen. Leo tells McManus that it might be wise to let Saeed have his way, but McManus isn't so willing, stating that if Leo gives in to him now, then what's to stop Saeed from doing the same again in the future? But Leo is hopeful that the lawsuit will be settled quickly, and that they'll deal with next time, if there is a next time. McManus tells him that if he lets Saeed win, then his stature grows, and they'll appear weak. But Leo's prepared to take one for the team, and that sometimes the only way to win is to lose. I can see where Leo is coming from on this, he's trying to play politics with Saeed. Unfortunately for McManus, who's going to be outnumbered in this situation, and while he's right to stand his ground and not give Saeed special treatment, Leo can just as easily go to Devlin, who he knows will side with him. Not just because it's the opposite of what McManus wants to do, but because he needs the lawsuit to go away as much as anyone. We get a shot of Saeed opening his footlocker, which contains some apples, an orange and some bananas, and he gives praise to Allah before locking eyes with McManus, as the scene cuts to black after lingering on a shot of Poet watching on. And for once, McManus is positioned lower than the inmates, echoing his statement about Saeed's growing stature to close out Act 2. I say we'll let Saeed have his way. Leo, you give in now. What's to stop him from using a hunger strike the next time he makes demands? We'll do it the next time, the next time. Hopefully this lawsuit will be settled. You let him win. His stature only grows. We lose. Sometimes the only way to win is to lose. Act 3 then, and Augustus is giving out about treadmills and how people just want to run on a machine, 
And I'm totally with him on this. I hate using a treadmill for the very reason he gives here. I'm very aware that I haven't gone anywhere. Same with cross trainers and exercise bikes. Can't use them. If I'm doing cardio, I need to be outside going somewhere. If the scenery changes, then I feel like I've achieved something. Claire meets up with McManus in his office and apologises for what happened between them and that she overreacted as we see a flashback. She admits that she was wrong and she just wants them to be back where they were. McManus tells her that they weren't anywhere and he's sorry if he misled her and that he wasn't looking for a serious relationship because he shit at commitment. Which when you consider that since the start of the show he's been involved with Gloria, Diane, Claire... And I think there was another time where he said he had a date and there's been a few references to him being divorced, including another one here. Either women find McManus irresistible, or he isn't just able to hold on to someone, and it's more likely the latter. Claire knocks on the window and tells Adebisi, who stood leaning on the railing across the way, to take a walk, and there's an air of cockiness to Adebisi this time. He doesn't seem to be as lucid as he has been recently, almost like he's the Adebisi of old. And Claire tells McManus that she just wants to be friends, and that the sex can just be sex. McManus seemed okay with the idea of just being friends, but he's very clear about how he doesn't think they should be sleeping together anymore, and says that it complicates things. They go back and forth a couple of times before Claire asks whether or not it's because McManus thinks that she's poor in bed. And McManus does the worst thing he could have possibly done right here. He hesitates. What? What? You don't think I'm any good in bed? Oh shit! Seriously, Tim, don't ever fucking hesitate when someone asks you that. Lie about it all you want, but don't leave a dramatic pause, whatever you do. Claire is fuming and storms out of the room saying that McManus would rather be sucking off the inmates and repeatedly calls him a cocksucker, so she's taking this all very well. Cut to solitary where Claire is doing her rounds, checking that nobody has tried to copy Miguel, and she sees Bevelacqua doing something to his mattress and enters his cell. He tells her that she has nice tits, which Claire takes exception to, and puts a beating on him. Bevelacqua is a character who has been on the show as a member of the Latinos, but had previously gone uncredited. But he's played by George Aguilar, who also worked as a stunt coordinator on the first two series of the show, and has an extensive resume in the field, starting his career in the late 1980s on films such as Big Shots, Robocop 2, and New Jack City. And prior to Oz also worked on Batman Forever, 12 Monkeys, Donnie Brasco, and The Peacemaker. We will see Bevelacqua again, but this is the last time that we'll see him this series. Cut to Leo's office, where McManus is demanding that Claire be fired because of the two incidents in solitary. Leo tries to give her the benefit of the doubt, saying that she's new, but McManus calls Claire dangerous, and that Bevelacqua might be permanently brain damaged from the beating he suffered. Leo says that he'll transfer her to another unit, but McManus again demands that she's fired. As he opens the door, we see Claire sat there, and there is no way that she didn't hear everything that was just said. That was a great reveal, really well done. Leo summons Claire into his office, and as he closes the door, we see that it's painted the same colour as the reception outside, almost like it's a secret doorway, I've never noticed that before. Cut to M-City, where McManus introduces Officer Murphy to the inmates. Can I have your attention, please? Can I have your attention, please? Gentlemen. Okay, this is Officer Sean Murphy, the new supervisor in Emerald City. I've read the files on each of you. I know you're tough. Life in our sucks. 
This I also know. Don't force me to make the days even worse. This was something else that I found a bit odd with the episode, as Officer Murphy has been there for at least a few days now, so it seemed odd that McManus is giving him this introduction when chances are most of the inmates will have seen Murphy already. Having said that, there was something that I noticed that I really liked as well. If you look in the two-shot of McManus and Murphy, you can see that the ceiling still has some fire damage from the riot. So not only is the past looming over us in the form of Saeed's lawsuit, it's also looming over the prison visually. Some really good stuff by the production designers there. Ryan, who's been down playing slaps with Cyril, has spotted an opportunity, noting that Murphy is Irish just like them. And you can sense the wheel turning in Ryan's head, trying to figure out how he can use this to his advantage. Later on at lunchtime, and Schillinger is in line to be served by Cyril. He tells him, hello, buttercup, which sets Ryan off straight away. There's no, fuck you, Schillinger, get out of here. It's not to 60 in 0.2 of a second. But this needed to play out this way to set up the next scene, so I'll allow it on this occasion. Ryan is led away and taken to McManus' office, along with Murphy. And Ryan is telling McManus that if he sends him to the hull, then Cyril won't have any protection from Schillinger. But McManus tells him that he should have thought about that before he jumped Schillinger in the lunch line. Ryan gives an insincere apology, which gets a rare chuckle out of McManus. But Murphy asks if he can handle Ryan on this occasion. McManus says, yeah, go for it, I gotta get through to him. Which I doubt we'd have seen before, and shows just how much respect McManus has for Murphy, that he's willing to let him take the reins. They leave the office and Murphy tells Ryan that he's going to let this one go, but if it happens again, he'll personally stomp Ryan's ass. Ryan asks why Murphy's being so nice, and he says that he's read Ryan and Cyril's file and that he understands their situation because he has brothers too. Ryan also reckons it's to do with them being Black Irish. I wasn't sure what that term meant, so I had to look it up. And in the US, it used to be used to describe mixed-race descendants of Europeans and African Americans, or on some occasions Native Americans, in order to hide their heritage. Nowadays, it's more commonly used to refer to Irish people with black hair and eyes, who are thought to be descendants of the Spanish Armada in the 1500s, which is something that Murphy mentions in a scene later on. Cyril wouldn't be described as black Irish, as obviously he has blonde hair. I wonder if that's a plot point we'll revisit someday. They walk down the stairs and Ryan asks Murphy about competing in the Golden Gloves, which I mentioned last episode Robert Clahessy did in real life back in 1975. Ryan tells Murphy about Cyril being a boxer and that Ryan has entered him into the tournament. Murphy questions this by asking Ryan about Cyril being slow, but Ryan assures him that once the bell rings, it's as if Cyril's instincts come back to him, and he's a real force in the ring. The problem is that Ryan admits that he doesn't know the first thing about boxing, and asks if Murphy is willing to assist in coaching Cyril, but Murphy tells him that he can't because that would be showing favouritism, but Ryan's just looking for some pointers, and to consider it just two Irish boys helping each other out. We get some footage of the competitors training in the gym, and in the background you can see Napa taking some bets, which I thought was a really nice touch. Cyril is working away on the speed bag, and he's doing okay on it, to be honest. I used to work at a store that sold sporting equipment, and we used to have a boxing apparatus set up which had a speed bag and a heavy bag. And I don't know what it was, but every guy that came into the shop just had to have a go on this thing. And all of them thought they were Mike Tyson. When in reality, maybe 1 in 20 managed to get more than 3 hits on the speed bag before losing the rhythm. And even the ones that got past that many didn't do much better. It's a weird thing about guys, when they see something like that, they feel like they have to like prove their masculinity or something. 
Ryan looks across and sees Murphy, and he gives him the thumbs up, so Ryan is feeling confident heading into the first round. Now when this boxing storyline was being put together, the cast were asked by the producers who has boxing experience, and practically everybody said, yeah, yeah, I've done some boxing, no problem. In reality, when it came to film these scenes, only Chuck Zito from the main cast had any sort of boxing experience. What this meant was that the stunt coordinator, Blaze Corrigan, had very little time to get the actors up to speed, and a lot of these scenes were choreographed and filmed round by round. So you would block out the scene for round one, practice it a couple of times, film it, and then do the same for round two, and so on and so on. It probably also explains why we don't see all the competitors training for their fights, and also why some of these fights don't go very long at all. We dissolve out of the gym where the inaugural fight is getting underway, and the cafeteria has been turned into a mini Madison Square Garden. And I reckon that Leo McManus have got the best seats because they're sat up on the stage, almost like it's some sort of skybox. So Officer Dagnasty is acting as the referee, and he says that they've eliminated weight classes from the tournament which in the real world would get this shut down immediately. Boxing programs are fiercely regulated in order to run, as I mentioned last episode, and weight classes are something that would be essential to them existing. Here though, that's some creative licensing, because obviously not everyone in the prison is the same build or weight. And we see that here, as it's now time. Live from the Oswald State Correctional Facility Level 4, it's showtime! So our first fight sees Chucky, the Enforcer Pankama, taking on throttling Steve Pasquin. I love that each fighter has been given a nickname, they've gone all in with the boxing cliches. And the Enforcer for Chucky, that's fine because that's his rank in the Italians, so that makes sense. Throttling Steve Pasquin on the other hand, second time we've seen him here, he was in the last episode too, training in the gym. And he's representing the bikers, and I'm guessing that his nickname is somehow linked to his crime, but we don't find that out for sure. He's played by John Peretti in what is his only credited acting role, but he also worked as a stunt coordinator in both series 1 and 2, and is an accomplished martial artist in his own right. He also claims to be the person to have coined the term mixed martial arts, which you can believe if you want to. I like that Chucky is wearing proper boxing shorts, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were Chuck Zito's own shorts while Pasquin looks like he's just come out in his undies. So round one gets underway and both fighters come out to the centre of the ring, Chucky throws a massive right hook, and it's over as Pasquin hits the deck and is out colder than a block of ice. Your winner, at 28 seconds of the very first round, Chucky the Enforcer Pancamo. The other competitors look on in awe of Chucky's power, especially Cyril who drops his mouthguard to the floor, that was really funny, and clearly Chucky is the man to beat. We go to Ryan reading up on Muhammad Ali in the library when Schillinger and Robson enter, saying that Cyril has been drawn against Robson in the first round. Ryan gets pissy and asks how Robson wants to lose the rest of his dick, as Schillinger gives us one of the best OOOH faces that I've ever seen. Officer Lepresti, played by Cal DiMaggio, moves Ryan along and tells Robson that the CEOs are betting on him to win at odds of 5-1. to one. Carl DiMaggio sadly couldn't find much out about him at all, very little information about him online, but Oz was his acting debut, and I think he's around until the end of the show, and I'm pretty sure he gets worked into a storyline in series 4. 
Brian and Cyril head down to the meeting room for a visit from their Aunt Brenda. Brian. <laughs> Aunt Brenda. Cyril. What'd you bring? Your favorites. No, 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 no. You're in training. In training? For what? A fight. They organized a boxing match. Oh, Ryan, no. You can't have the boy boxing. Why not? His brain's rattled enough. Sweetheart, do you want to box? Hey, what are you asking him that for? Because I know how you bully him into doing the things you want. Fuck you. Ryan. No, fuck you. What, all of a sudden now you're worried about Cyril? I've always been worried about him. I'm worried about the both of you. Oh, yeah? Well, then where the fuck were you when we were growing up? Where were you when that shithead was beating on us, on Ma? You were up with your goddamn mask while I protected Cyril. Me! Oh, you took care of him, all right. You took care of him good. Because of you, his mind is muddled. Because of you, he's in this hellhole. Listen, do us a favor, you old bitch, and drop fucking dead, all right? Come on, Cyril. You got the devil in you, Ryan. Just like your father. That little music sting when Brenda mentions about Ryan being like his father was fucking amazing. One of my favourite parts of the episode. Aunt Brenda is played by Anne Mira, another veteran stage actress, as well as a Tony and Emmy Award nominee and a Writers Guild Award winner, but is probably best known for a comedy duo with her husband Jerry Stiller, who she married in 1955, and who together became regulars on The Ed Sullivan Show, appearing 36 times, as well as on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. The couple had two children together, Amy, born in 1961, and a son who I'm sure you've probably guessed by now is Hollywood star Ben Stiller, born in 1965. We will see her again, but it won't be for some time. But we do have a bigger question to ask in the meantime, and to do that, it's time once again to play Homicide or Nomicide. So a simple enough one this week, did Anne Mira appear in Homicide Life on the Street before appearing on Oz? Have a think about it, no googling, and I'll let you know at the end of the show. So Ryan meets up with Murphy to discuss Cyril's fight, and Murphy says that he's seen Robson training. While he admits that he thinks Robson is tough, he does see a weakness saying that Robson tends to drop his left hand, and that Cyril should look to hit the right hook. Ryan is concerned about Cyril getting hurt again, but balks at Murphy's suggestion of pulling out of the fight, and that there must be something he can do to give Cyril an edge. Murphy asks Ryan if he knows the story of the Black Irish, tying back to when Ryan mentioned it earlier, and as I mentioned previously, talks about the Armada being defeated and arriving on Irish shores, and how they figured out a way to survive even though they couldn't speak a lick of English, and that survival is in Ryan's blood. Ryan heads down to the laundry room and runs into Cudney, who's folding his washing. Ryan asks why the Christians haven't entered anyone into the tournament, Cudney saying that they decided not to compete and that it's morally wrong. 
He quickly changes his tune when Ryan offers him a chance to make a few extra bucks. And we see Cudney sneak out a vial of chloral hydrate from a medicine cabinet, and Ryan then drop what can only be described as a heroic dose into Robson's water bottle. Chloral hydrate is a sedative discovered in Gisen, Germany in 1832 by Justus von Lieberg, who sounds like he should be a baddie in Captain America, and in the US is classed as a Schedule 4 controlled substance, hence why it was locked away in a cupboard a moment ago. It used to be used as a short-term treatment for insomnia until the mid-20th century, but has since been replaced as it's not approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the US or the European Medicines Agency although it is used on occasions as a sedative for surgery due to its fast-acting and long-lasting nature. Use of the drug has been linked to the death of some celebrities, including Marilyn Monroe, Anna Nicole Smith, and Hank Williams, as well as being one of the drugs linked to the mass murder-suicides at Jonestown in 1978. So we get the fight between Cyril and Robson, and Cyril seems to be holding his own early on, but he's taking some hard shots as well and is saved by the bell. They take their stools and there's a very obvious shot of Robson's water bottle slap bang in the middle of the frame, as if to say, hey, pay attention to this. It's at this point as well that we see Oswald's resident transvestite, Fiona Zonioni, is acting as the between-round ring girl, which was another good boxing cliche worked into the episode and is played by James Palacio. Born and raised in New York City, James attended Hunter College at the City University of New York, majoring in theatre and dance. A fixture of the city's drag and cabaret scene since the late 1980s, James is the only Latina Empress of the Imperial Court of New York elect, and was crowned Miss Long Island Best Professional in 1994. Outside of community theatre, James only other accredited acting roles prior to Oz were the 1995 movie, To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything Julie Newmar, where they appeared as their drag persona, Fiona St. James, and the movie Stonewall, for which James appeared on the poster for the Australian release of the film, and also featured appearances from Oz co-stars Stephen Wishnoff, who plays Fiona's cellmate Tony Masters, and Luis Guzman. Despite being on the show from series 2 onwards, Fiona is very much a background character, and goes uncredited apart from one episode in series 5, but one thing that the character does very well is distinguish themselves from the other characters in the background, you always know when Fiona is on camera. The character doesn't ever get a crime flashback, but I did read recently that James actually gave Fiona their own background story, and that they were in Oz on a prostitution charge, as well as a double murder charge, Fiona killing both their pimp and a younger prostitute who took Fiona's spot. And it did make me wonder what crimes some of the other minor characters had been convicted of. Obviously, not everybody can get a crime flashback, but I do like the idea of people being allowed to invent something for their character. You heard James at the start of the show, and be sure to go and check out his Fiona Coffee Talks YouTube channel, and I'll include a link to that in the episode description. So Ryan checks that Robson is getting his water, and tells Cyril that it's all good, as the next round gets underway. As I mentioned, Chloral Hydrate is fast-acting, and you can see that Robson is moving noticeably slower in this round, and Cyril is getting off some good stiff shots, and even has Robson backed up in the corner at one point. You can see him becoming more and more disoriented, which is shown through some good sound design, making the venue sound like it has a cavernous echo, and he even drops his mouth guard at one point. Cyril lands some more heavy shots as the bell rings to end the round, and Robson stumbles back to his corner. Gillinger asks him what the hell's going on as he continues to pour water down Robson's throat, and he's really starting the struggle now as Schillinger catches him staring at Fiona's ass before he comes out for the next round. 
Robson swings wildly at Cyril, who's able to dodge that before landing a huge uppercut to end the fight, laying Robson out on the canvas. Augustus narrates about winning at all costs, and that when he was a sprinter, he was great at the 50-yard dash, claiming that he ran it in 6.5 seconds, which is pretty fucking quick and would put Augustus at an elite level, considering the world record stands at 5.22 seconds, set by Stanley Floyd in 1982. Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson held the record at one time, clocking 5.2 seconds at an event in Hamilton, Ontario, before breaking that record two weeks later at the Toronto Sun Indoor Games in January 1988, setting a new world record time of 5.15 seconds. After winning the gold medal in the 100 metres in a then-world record 9.79 seconds at the Olympic Games in Seoul, South Korea that same year, Johnson was stripped of his world records and gold medal in 1990 due to being a massive drugs cheat. Cut to M-City, and Ribeiro approaches Murphy telling him that he needs to leave to go and have his dialysis treatment. But Murphy says that there's nothing on the schedule, and all that Ribeiro is down for is a visit at 3 o'clock. Ribeiro insists that an appointment was to be scheduled, and Clayton says that he'll call down and check it out. With regards to his visit, Ribeiro says that his mother's coming, and like we've seen from others on the show... Murphy seems taken aback that Ribido still has a living mother. Cut to the visiting room where Ribido meets with Mama Ribido, played by Uta Hagen. Born June 12, 1919 in Göttingen, Germany, Uta's father was an art historian and musician, and her mother a trained opera singer. The family emigrated to the US in 1924, settling in Madison, Wisconsin, where Uta appeared in productions at the University of Wisconsin High School, and in summer stock with the Wisconsin Players. After briefly studying at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, and the University of Wisconsin, where her father was the head of the Department of Art History, Uta made her professional stage debut in 1936, playing the part of Ophelia in a production of Hamlet held in Dennis, Massachusetts, before moving to New York the following year. In 1938, the same year she married her first husband, Jose Ferrer, Uta made her Broadway debut in The Seagull, and 1939 appeared in The Happiest Days and Key Largo. Along with her husband, Uta appeared in Othello in 1943, which through an association with her co-star Paul Robeson, led to Uta being placed on the Hollywood blacklist under suspicion of having ties to the Communist Party. Uta continued to act on the Broadway stage though, appearing in A Streetcar Named Desire in 1947, and in 1951 won her first Tony Award, winning Best Actress for The Country Girl. After divorcing Jose Ferrer in 1948 and marrying Herbert Berghoff in 1957, Uta originated the role of Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1962, winning her second Best Actress Tony Award in the process. Being on the blacklist meant that Uta was unable to forge any sort of film career until the 1970s, making her film debut in the psychological thriller The Other in 1972. The following year, she began teaching at the Herbert Berghoff Studio in New York, named after her husband, and wrote the best-selling acting textbooks Respect for Acting and A Challenge for the Actor. Names that studied under Uda at the school include Robert De Niro, Faye Dunaway, Gene Wilder, and Matthew Broderick, while Uda also worked as a voice coach to Judy Garland for her role in the film Judgment at Nuremberg. Uda returned to the Broadway stage in 1986, appearing in You Never Can Tell, while in the 90s she also took over the chairmanship of both HB Studios and the HB Playwrights Foundation following the death of her husband in 1990, as well as appearing in Mrs. Klein and Collected Stories, 
While on TV in 1999, she played the part of Maureen in a Series 3 episode of King of the Hill, as well as receiving the Tony Award Lifetime Achievement and the Fellowship of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences before appearing here on Oz. So Mama asks Ribido if he's sick, which he denies, but she says that he was never a good liar and he confesses to having diabetes. He tells her that he got the picture she sent of his grandson at SeaWorld, which she said did the world of good, but since then he started to falter. Ribido tells her that he wishes that he could do more, to which Mama says that he could meet him, but Ribido refuses. She says that she's told them the truth about Ribido being in prison, which she acknowledges was breaking her word, but also mentions that Ribido has never seen his son, let alone his grandson, and that they've been lying for years, even going so far as to say that Ribido was dead. She says that taking that lie to her grave won't do the family any good, but Ribido doesn't think that bringing them to Oz will do any good either as he leaves. Down in the cafeteria, Ryan gives Ribido the Diabetes Diet Delight, which doesn't look like it consists of very much, and Boost Malice tells him to get a move on before Schillinger finds them and spits in his food again. Ribido says that he's moving as fast as he can, but they soon run into Schillinger and Robson. Boost Malice has a plan though and spits in his own food first, leaving Schillinger in a mixture of confusion and with a look of, well, it's not funny if you do it to yourself. Buzmalis asks Ribido if he wants to trade lunches, but Ribido collapses and is whisked away to the infirmary, Gloria tearing into one of the workers for forgetting to schedule the dialysis appointment, calling the young lad an arsehole, and that Ribido could have died due to his carelessness. Later in the day, Gloria checks on Ribido, who says that he's feeling better, but admits that it was quite a scare. You can also see Keller sat in his bed reading a book, so he's on his way to recovery, as Ribido asks Gloria if he can use the phone. He calls his mum and says that he's changed his mind, and we then get the meeting between Ribido, his son Alex, and his grandson Alex Jr. to close out Act 3. No idea who was playing the roles of Alex and Alex Jr. as they went uncredited, but I think this is the only time we see them on the show, although I'm pretty sure they get referenced again in the future. You feeling better? What a scare, huh? Is there anything else I can do for you? May I use the phone? Mama? I've changed my mind. Act 4 starts off with a flashback of Adebisi pricking Napa with the infected needle, and watching this back made me realise that I fucked up last episode. For some reason, I had it in my head that Adebisi had done the Oberyn Martell putting the poison on the blade trick, and that this was an infected comb needle. But I went back and watched it again, and yeah, he's just hiding the hypodermic behind the comb, so I've no idea how I made that mistake. We see Adebisi lifting Robbie Gurth into bed, and Robbie's telling him that he knows about his little scheme and asks who Adebisi's trying to infect, but Adebisi laughs it off, saying that Robbie's delirious. Back in the M-City washroom, Napper is asking Adebisi why he wants to work in the AIDS ward, and he's using some horrific terms that I'm not going to repeat here, but Napper is of that generation where this sort of outlook was common, so it's at least fitting with his character. Adebisi makes a point of how Sicilians kiss each other on the cheek, but Napa calls that respect, not sex, as Adebisi says that he understands and heads into the shower, completely naked apart from his slippers and his mismatched socks. 
I'm guessing he'll take them off later and let them dry out. Later on, Napa meets with Gloria, who has some test results for him, so he's obviously paid a visit between now and when we saw him earlier when he was coughing. Gloria doesn't seem sure how to break the news to Napa, and is told to just be direct with it, as she tells him that he's HIV positive. Napa is outraged, but also says that it can't be possible, saying that as far as he understands, you get AIDS from either sharing needles or through sex. He says that he hasn't done either, nor is he Haitian, which seems a really random thing to say, but it's a reference to the debate about whether or not the HIV virus originated in Haiti and stems from a 1982 controversy where Haitians were mislabeled by doctors as being high risk, leading to the term the four H's, referring to homosexuals, haemophiliacs, heroin addicts and Haitians as the main groups prone to HIV infection. Gloria tries to explain that Napa doesn't have AIDS and that he is HIV positive, the difference being that HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, can be treated with medication, whereas AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, is the advanced stage of the HIV infection where the immune system is destroyed. Napa tells Gloria to run the tests again, Gloria saying that she's already double-checked them, but Napa wants them triple-checking and repeats that it's an impossibility. Gloria says that she's going to schedule Napa for counselling, and that state policy stipulates that he's to be transferred to a different unit, Unit E, as Napa demands to speak to Leo. That obviously didn't go so well, because we cut to Napa packing his things to leave M City, including a drawing by his grandson Tommy. He explains to Chucky what isolation means, which, considering everything happening in the world right now as I'm putting this episode together, is strangely relevant. Depending when this episode goes out, obviously you're well aware that we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and many countries around the world, including my own, are in the middle of government-enforced lockdowns. So we're all getting a dose of what it must be like to be an inmate at Oz. Napa puts Chucky in charge until he gets back, which is pretty optimistic of him, and he goes to kiss Chucky on the cheek, but Chucky pulls away not wanting to become infected. Obviously, massive amount of ignorance shown there by Chucky, as HIV can't be transmitted that way. Even in 1999, we knew that. But on the flip side, if this were today, then Chucky is practicing good social distancing. We also get that forget about it from the Oz sound library, which is always worth a giggle whenever you hear that. So Napa leaves M City for Unit E. Adabizi giving him a sarcastic see you later, boss, as Napa receives jeers upon his arrival and meets his new cellmate who he seems thrilled to be bunking with, as an officer calls for lights out to end the scene. So, all change with the Italians as Napa is out, and Chucky is promoted to leader, at least in M-City. Obviously, this leaves the Italians down a man too, so it'll be interesting to see who comes in, and also what role Napa will have due to his enforced isolation. This also means that Chucky becomes the fourth man since the start of the show to have been the leader of the Italian gang, after Nino and Peter Shibeta, and now succeeding Antonio Napa. We get a flashback of the attack on Keller from the last episode, and we also see him talking to McManus in the hospital, complaining that his bedsores have bedsores. McManus has been told that Keller will be back in M-City by the end of the day, and that Keller seems to have made a miraculous recovery, and he also asks if Keller has any idea who it was that attacked him, but Keller tells him no, that it was dark and that they came from behind. McManus seems certain that Schillinger was involved in some way, whether that's by getting someone to do it for him, or he carried out the attack himself. But unfortunately, they haven't got any proof, and he mentions that Keller doesn't seem bothered by that. 
Keller asks McManus about being shot in the riot, and that a little handshake with death can change your perspective on things. And I love that phrase, a little handshake with death. I had every right to snitch out Schillinger, he's got every right to come after me. Mail! Isn't that right, Vern? Nothing for you today, Keller. No get well cards, no floral bouquets, not even a funeral wreath. We know you're responsible, Schillinger. Me? Well, I'll admit metaphorically it fits. He stabbed me in the back, so I stabbed him. But I didn't. I wish to Christ I had. Of course, if it had been me, you'd be dead. Godspeed. J.K. Simmons once again making the absolute most of his screen time. He's fucking amazing, isn't he? Can't have been on screen any more than 30 seconds, and he completely steals the scene. Great work. Later in the day, and after being released from the hospital, Keller meets up with Sister Pete for a chat. Thanks for seeing me, sister. That's why I got made office hours. Beach is not around? No. Why? Is this about him? Huh? You know, um... You know what went on between us, right? I know that Tobias was in love with you, and that you broke his arms and his legs. Oh, Jesus Christ, you put it that way. It makes me sound so cold. So why don't you rephrase it so you come out the hero? I am sorry. What I did was wrong. And I want to make it up to him. Now, I hear that you got this victim um, offender interaction program starting up. I want to sign up. Well, it takes two to swing dance. Tobias has to be willing to participate. I know that. That's why I'm here. He likes you. He respects you. You suggested to him. He'll come along. Do you really care about him? You got no reason to believe me, but yeah. Okay. I'll see what I can do. Keller telling Pete that she has no reason to believe him was quite telling, I thought. He knows full well that his actions have consequences. And Pete's a smart woman who can probably see through his bullshit. Like how she told him to rephrase it so that he came out the hero. But, and this is just how I see it, tell me if you agree or not, but there's something about this wanting to prove to Beecher that he's changed that I feel is genuine. Either that or I'm falling for the same tricks that Beecher did and falling for Keller's charm. Back in M-City, and Sister Pete has told Beecher about Keller wanting to start a program interaction. And he says that he doesn't know what Keller's scam is, but he's not buying it. Keller insists that it's not a scam and he wants to make things right between the two of them. But Beecher says that he can't trust Keller or himself anymore and that the only thing that he's sure about is that he's going to get Schillinger. He's also out of his ankle boot but he still needs to use his cane. But he does a good job of getting onto the top bunk from the foot of the bed. Keller says that he can help with killing Schillinger. But Beecher tells him that he doesn't need any help and when Keller asks whether or not he plans on doing it by himself Beecher says that he should ask Metzger. Keller doesn't believe that Beecher took out Metzger, 
But Beecher says that when he killed Kathy Rockwell, he was full of remorse and self-loathing, because that was an accident. But with Metzger, it was sweet, and that sticking the shank in the Keller's back gave him the same feeling. When Keller asks if he did it, Beecher says that Keller hadn't even contemplated that it could have been Beecher who was the one, and mentions about watching Keller stacking copy paper, and then clasps his fist to his hand twice. Keller, as honest as we've seen him on the show so far, asks Beecher again if he did it, but Beecher tells him no. But that for a second, Keller believed that it could have been good old Toby, and also says that he didn't really kill Metzger, asking how could a little pussy bitch like me hurt anyone. Keller lays down on his bed, but he has one more question to ask. Hey, Beecher, if you weren't in the storage room, how'd you know I was shelving copying paper? Hmm. I don't know. Shit, maybe it was me. Now, I gotta pray. Pray that God shows me the way to fuck Schillinger. That line about the room and the copy paper, there are two ways you could look at that. Either Beecher has just admitted that it was him that attacked Keller. Or, who's to say that Rebido hasn't relayed the information of Keller's attack to Beecher at some point? We've seen in the past that Rebido, through some method, whether that's by hearing from God or some other source, is privy to gaining information. So he could have feasibly told Beecher about what happened to Keller, including where it happened and that Keller was stabbed twice. Also, don't forget that Beecher has access to the prison filing system, so maybe he's just had a read through Keller's file and pulled the information that way. I'm still leaning towards Beecher being the attacker, but there is a case to be made that it was someone else, and Beecher just happens to know the crucial parts of the story. But I'm still with this story, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops. The final scene sees Saeed and Arif passing out the prison belongings to a new inmate, who we see has a familiar Nazi tattoo on his hand and when he's asked for his number, says it in a condescending, slow manner. Saeed takes a look at his clipboard and mentions about the young man's name as we see the crime flashback of Andrew Peter Schellinger, played by Frederick Kohler, in which Andrew and his buddies are dragging a black man from the rear of their pickup truck. I'll talk more about Frederick on the next episode, but this flashback is another one based on a real-world crime. On June 7th, 1998, James Bird Jr. was murdered in Jasper, Texas by three white supremacists, Sean Berry, John King, and Lawrence Brewer. After being beaten and having his face spray-painted, Bird was tied to the back of a pickup truck and dragged for three miles on an asphalt road. While Bird remained conscious throughout most of the ordeal, after approximately 1.5 miles, his body hit a culvert, severely severing his head and his right arm. He was then dragged for another 1.5 miles before his body was dumped in front of a cemetery on Huff Creek Road in Jasper, his body being discovered the following morning by a passerby. Brewer claimed that Bird's neck had been slashed by Berry, who was driving the truck, before the dragging commenced. However, forensic evidence suggests that Bird had attempted to keep his head from the road during the dragging, while an autopsy suggested that he was alive for much of it. Along the road where the dragging took place, Police found a wrench with Sean Berry's surname on it, as well as a lighter belonging to John King engraved with the word Possum, his prison nickname from a previous conviction. Police also found remains of James Bird at 81 locations along the dragging route, and it was state law officials that declared it a hate crime, giving
giving impetus to Congress passing the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, more commonly known as the Matthew Shepard Act, in 2009. Lawrence Brewer received the death penalty and was executed by lethal injection on September 21, 2011 in Huntsville, Texas. John King, who had several racist tattoos including Nazi symbols, a portrait of a black man being lynched, the words Aryan Pride, and the patch of the Confederate Knights of America, showed no remorse for the killing, writing in a prison letter that, regardless of this outcome, we've made history, as well as references to the Turner Diaries, a 1978 novel by William Luther Pierce published under a pseudonym and which depicts a violent revolution against the federal government. On April 22, 2019, Two days prior to his scheduled execution, John King's appeals were denied by both the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals and the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. John King was executed by lethal injection on April 24, 2019, in Huntsville, Texas. Sean Berry was sentenced to life imprisonment and is currently housed in protective custody at W.F. Ramsey Prison in Rusharan, Texas, eligible for parole in 2038. Despite two of his father's murderers receiving the death penalty, Bird's son Ross has been involved with the Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation, an organisation that opposes the death penalty. In the wake of the murder, the family founded the James Bird Foundation for Racial Healing, while NBA star Dennis Rodman paid the family's funeral costs, as well as donating $25,000. Boxing promoter Don King also made a $100,000 donation to help with Ross's education expenses. The episode closes with Andrew making his way through M-City, Passing Beecher, who chuckles away to himself having found a way to get back at Schillinger, as we cut to black. Prisoner number 99S333, Andrew Peter Schillinger. Convicted February 16th, 99. Murder in the second degree. Possession of narcotics. Sentence, 50 years. Up for parole in 20. there you have it series three episode three legs i'll be honest with you the first half of this episode is a bit of a letdown from what has so far been a pretty decent opening to series three it opened with the aftermath of miguel's suicide attempt which is fair enough that was the cliffhanger from the previous episode but that's all taken care of within the first five minutes and the rest of that first half hour or so wraps some story arcs up far too quickly Dr. Garvey's time on the show gets ended very abruptly and with a development that had no build, while Malcolm Coyle is murdered off-screen to send a message to Kenny and the homeboys. But other than that, we only really get the introduction of Nikolai Stanislavski. Saeed's lawsuit is alluded to, but doesn't really develop far beyond his co-lawyer Arnold Zellman having a quick meeting with Leo McManus. And we also get another example of Claire's short fuse, which we've already seen. It wasn't until Murphy did his little introduction in M-City that the episode really picked up, and once we got into the boxing scenes, I felt the second half was much better than the first. Ryan has found himself something of a new ally in Officer Murphy, while Adebisi has extracted a measure of revenge by getting Napa removed from M-City, 
leaving the Italian's position within the gang hierarchy weakened. Ribido got a sweet moment meeting his son and grandson for the first time, and it topped off nicely with Beecher continuing to play mind games with Keller. It's not a bad episode, and there have been others that I've enjoyed less, but it is let down by a poor first half, which is a shame because the first two episodes of Series 3 were really good. With a death count of one for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Malcolm Coyle, aka Anthony Chris, better known as Treach. Following his time on Oz, Treach and his naughty by nature bandmates entered into a series of financial disputes, eventually leading to DJKG leaving the group in late 2000. Continuing as a two-piece consisting of Treach and Vin Rock, Naughty by Nature released their Icons album in 2002. However, following a mixed reception from fans and critics, the group went on a four-year hiatus. DJ KG returned to the group in 2006, although it would be another four years until new material surfaced in the form of the single Get To Know Me Better, as well as releasing Naughty by Nature the mixtape. In 2011, the group became the first hip-hop act to perform at Boston's Fenway Park, opening for New Kids on the Block on their co-headline tour with the Backstreet Boys. In December 2011, nine years after their previous album, Naughty by Nature released Anthem Inc., featuring a mixture of new music as well as re-recordings of previous hits. In 2013, Treach told fans that Vin Rock had been fired for failing to put in as much effort as the rest of the group and that the pair hadn't been on speaking terms for around two years. By the time 2015 rolled around, Vinrock returned to the group, although Treach stretched that their relationship was strictly business, and that a new Naughty by Nature album would be unlikely. The group continues to tour, most recently as part of the mixtape tour alongside Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, Salt and Pepper, and New Kids on the Block. In terms of his acting, Treach has continued to appear in minor roles on TV for shows such as Soul Food, the series, Third Watch, Fast Lane, and a one-off appearance in the final series of The Sopranos, as well as in leading roles in films such as Book of Love and Fast as a Bullet. His most recent TV credits include The Night Of and Blue Bloods from 2016 and 2017 respectively, as well as playing the part of Trigger in the to-be-released Equal Standard, and Black Diablo in Where All Else Fails, which at the time of recording is in pre-production. In 2001, Treach divorced from Sandra Denton, who in their 2008 memoir Let's Talk About Pepper, alleged to abuse occurring throughout their relationship, allegations which Treach denied through social media in 2017. Treach has had his own brushes with the law when on April 10th, 2014, he was arrested in Union City, New Jersey for speeding, specifically driving 55 miles per hour in a 25 miles per hour zone. After a weapons-drawn standoff with the police, Treach was cited with reckless driving, speeding, and driving with a suspended license, as well as for a warrant in Essex County for failing to appear at a child support hearing, and for warrants in Secaucus, New Jersey for failing to appear at a hearing relating to motor vehicle violations. Treach spent the following night in jail before being released on a bail of $15,000. Treach has since remarried to Cicely Evans following a relationship of over 10 years, marrying in September 2019. Also leaving the show is Milo O'Shea playing the part of penny-pinching bureaucrat and apparent abortionist Dr. Garvey. Milo had only a handful of roles post-Oz, appearing in the movies Moonglow in 2000, Pacoon in 2002, and 2003's Mystics. While on TV, he appeared in two episodes of ABC's short-lived sitcom Madigan Men, with his final acting role being for two episodes of The West Wing on NBC, 
playing the role of Chief Justice Arnold Ashland. Milo O'Shea passed away on April 2nd, 2013, following a short illness at the age of 86. This is also the final appearance of John Peretti as boxing tomato can throttling Steve Pasquin. After leaving the show, John continued to work as a stunt coordinator on movies such as All the Rage, Animal Factory, and in 2002 worked on Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. John founded the Battlecade Extreme Fighting promotion before joining the UFC as a matchmaker in 2001, and in 2008 acted as a referee at the debut event promoted by Yama Pit Fighting. However, the promotion folded soon afterwards. In 2019, he published his autobiography, The Origin of a Species and the Mixed Martial Arts, and in May 2019 was inducted into the Universal Martial Arts Hall of Fame. After a short run on the show, we also say goodbye to Patrick Breen, playing the part of Robbie Gerf in the AIDS ward. Patrick is perhaps best known as the narrator on The Magic Adventures of Mumphy, as well as recurring roles in Madam Secretary on CBS, the satirical internet series Hull Day Down, and in more recent years as Larry Waiter in a series of unfortunate events on Netflix, while his latest credit is for the film Milkwater, listed as being in post-production at the time of recording. Also after leaving Oz, Patrick returned to the stage, appearing in The Next Fall in 2009, The Normal Heart in 2011, and is credited in the 2020 production of the Broadway play The Complexed. The Oz One and Done Club also welcomes a new member in Uda Hagen playing the part of Mama Ribadour. Uda's career post-Oz was limited following a stroke in 2001, with credits such as the narrator in the movie Limon, A Life Beyond Words in 2001, as well as making her final stage appearances in 2000, reprising the role of Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf at the age of 80 to critical acclaim, and in 2001 starred in the Richard Alfieri play Six Dance Lessons in Six Weeks, alongside David Hyde Pierce at the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. In 2002, Uda was honoured with the National Medal of Arts, the prestigious award presented by the US government to artists and art patrons, and made her final TV appearance in an episode of One Life to Live. Uda Hagen passed away in January 2004 at a home in Greenwich Village in New York City. My episode MVP? Really difficult to pick for this episode, certainly not helped by a lacklustre first half. An honourable mention goes to Bob Rebido for doing the right thing and meeting with his son and grandson before something potentially bad happens due to his diabetes, but I'm gonna give the award to Officer Murphy for this episode. While Ryan might see Murphy's appointment as a chance to make a new ally, Murphy seems to be wanting to make M-City run as easy and as smoothly as possible without jeopardising his position. He recognises that Ryan and Cyril had it tough growing up, relating to the situation, and while not helping Ryan to train Cyril for any sort of financial gain, him looking out for Cyril's welfare is to be commended. So for those reasons, Officer Sean Murphy wins the episode MVP. And in the result of Homicide or Nomicide, Auntie Brenda, better known as Anne Mira, did appear in Homicide Life on the Street prior to Oz. She appeared in the two-part Hostage episode that opened the show's fifth season, so well done if you got that right. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castro Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can also listen to the show on podchaser.com. All of those places have the first two series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 3 so far, 
and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes there as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter using the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we won't be talking about earthquakes or typhoons. Instead, we'll be talking about Series 3, Episode 4, Unnatural Disasters, where an inmate makes his return to M-City, McManus continues to have problems with Claire, Ryan and Keller form an alliance, and the first round of the boxing tournament continues. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Take care and stay safe.